Uh, if you've ever been to an orchestra performance, I think you'd agree with me that one of the more intriguing moments is near the beginning when they get all the instruments in the room and they're unpacking them and they're playing them and they're doing the scales. I'm not sure all they're doing, but it's just a lot of noise in the room. You can tell they're getting ready for something, but it doesn't really make any sense. You know, some are louder, some are softer. You see the woodwinds, the brass, the percussion, the strings, and everyone's kind of doing their own thing. It's a lot of variety, wouldn't you agree? And you kind of get the sense like, wow, there's a lot of instruments here. And then at some point, either the concert master or the conductor will, will tune everyone. And then the conductor will take center stage and he will bring out of all of that variety, which at one point was just really noise, he will lead them to make beautiful music. The conductor takes the variety and brings unity. And so it is with the church and our conductor, Christ. There's a lot of variety in the church, and that's a good thing. But without the conductor, it can just be noise. But Christ has stepped up, and he's our authoritative conductor, and he takes all the variety that he's actually given to the church, and he leads us in making the beautiful song of unity. And I think this is the essential point of the next section of verses in Ephesians chapter 4 in which what's discussed is how to walk with Christ in variety. You know, we looked at how to walk with Christ in unity. Variety takes center stage now for a number of verses. And what I want to do is just kind of walk through these with you over the next several weeks. So take your Bibles and locate Ephesians chapter 4. I'll begin reading about verse 7. I'm going to read through 16 for context's sake, but we're only going to look at verses 7 to 11 today. Have your journals out, get ready to mark in them, write some things down, take good notes. Lots to get through today that I think will help us practically and uh, spiritually, no doubt. I'll begin reading in verse 7. Here's what God's word says to us. May his spirit empower it for our benefit. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
Now, it's not hard to spot that Paul is now moving to a somewhat different topic. It's the very first word in verse 7 in the ESV. Could you say it with me? But. It's a word of contrast. And so Paul now is showing here a change is happening. It was about the unity of and in the body, but now he's going to talk about something else. And it's going to be the idea of variety or diversity in and of the body. And specifically, the variety of spiritual gifts or the diversity of spiritual gifts in and of the body. So he's moving from unity to variety. And the word by which he gets there is the word but. So just keep that in your mind. We're transitioning to a different um, thought for a minute. Now you may be saying, well, Todd, I'm not sure where you get spiritual gifts out of this. I don't even see the word gifts in this verse. Like, how did you land there? Great question. Glad you asked it. Let me walk you through how we can biblically and accurately understand this to be talking about spiritual gifts. Now look at verse seven. It is what I think is the opening statement. You could use the word phrase or verse. I think it sets the the bedrock and the framework for everything through verse 16. It's a simple um, reality statement that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he builds on that to talk about spiritual gifts, their variety, as well as their end game. So you say, well, Todd, how do you get gift out of this verse? Well, first of all, I think there's, there's two things I want you to see. There's the meaning of the word and then the usage of the word. The meaning of the word grace and gift is the same in the biblical language. It's the word charis or charismata, charisma. It's all the same root word. And so grace is sometimes grace and sometimes it means gift. By the way, grace is a gift. So it's really hard to distinguish. You don't want to necessarily make them mean different things. They mean the same thing. But sometimes they refer to salvation and sometimes they refer to a gift and enablement by the Holy Spirit after salvation. How do we know this one's referring to an enablement by the Holy Spirit after salvation? It's because of the phrasing, um, each one of us according to the measure of Christ. Uh, and then, of course, the context that it says he gave gifts to men. He lists a sampling of those gifts. So when you think about the context and the usage of this word, you realize, oh, he's not speaking of salvation here. He's speaking of this supernatural enablement. Furthermore, this actual phrasing, each one of us according to the measure, is used also in Romans 12, 6 and 1 Corinthians 12, 4. And those are two primary passages about spiritual gifts. So the meaning of the word is gift. And the usage of the word, this same phrase and this word is used in two other passages. So we just kind of deduct, oh, he's speaking here of the same thing he was speaking of in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, which is spiritual gifts, not salvific gifts. Now, let me say this. On the heels of that, they are both grace gifts because you don't earn either one of them. You don't earn your salvation. You don't merit it. And you don't earn or merit a spiritual or Holy Spirit enabled empowerment. It's given by Jesus Christ freely as he determines. So they're both gracious gifts. Are you with me? But you have to kind of look at context and usage to see, okay, which one's being referred to here. And in this passage, he is speaking of a spiritual gift given after salvation an empowerment or an enablement to serve the body of Christ. Now, notice that in this phrase, in this verse, he says that these graces or these gifts are given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Now, maybe I'm the only guy in the room that thinks this, but that was a, a difficult phrase. Like I was thinking, so does Christ have a gift? And mine's like based on his? Or what does this mean? Like I've got a gift that's uh, based on the measure of Christ's gift. I just don't get that. Here, here's what it literally translates to. Listen to this. It's a, you've been given a gift in proportion to Christ's allotted giving. What he's saying there is this. You have a gift and it's based on or in keeping with Christ's pleasure and prerogative and privilege to give it. In fact, I would ask you to add an ing on the word gift and don't see it as Christ's gift. See it as Christ's gifting. In other words, you've been given a gift based on the measure of Christ's privilege and pleasure to give a gift. And he does. He's the one who gives the gifts. He allots and determines and proportions who gets what, one, two, or whatever, when they get them. So this is what he's saying in this verse. All of us have a gift, and it's in keeping with Christ's privilege to give us those gifts. In other words, plainly speaking, you have just what the doctor ordered. And before I move on to discuss the variety that's discussed in this text, I want to make two general observations because I brought up a subject that's pretty large, the subject of spiritual gifts. I've mentioned multiple passages, and you may be thinking, Todd, I'm swimming already and I'm about to drown. I'm not even sure I know what some of these words mean, these terms, these topics. Can you just give me a, a minute? Well, I'll give you more than a minute. I'll give you several, like two weeks. How does that sound? Here's what I want you to do. We've spoken about... Um, these topics, oh, I think for two or three years consecutively because we've begun to realize more and more that spiritual gifts are one of the primary ways you live out your doctrine. In fact, notice this. In Ephesians, after three chapters of really airtight logic about who and how and why God saves, what's his first topic? Spiritual gifts. The same as Romans. Romans 1 through 11, man, airtight logic about how and who and why God saves. And what does Romans 12 begin with? Spiritual gifts. Church, listen, I lean into you now because I don't want you to unintentionally minimize, de-emphasize, or miss the fact that one of the primary ways you live out your doctrine, that you showcase your theology, is through spiritual gifts. It's one of Paul's first topics in both of these really doctrinal books. And so in the past, we've just said to ourselves, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're not just missing spiritual gifts and not talking about them. So for the last two or three years, we've spoken annually on them. The series have been called For the Common Good. There are two seasons of the series out there, For the Common Good 1 and For the Common Good 2, right? Ingenious, I know. And so I want to encourage you to go back to our sermon feed, maybe our podcast, even YouTube. And especially if you're new, we've had a host of new people in the last, oh, eight to nine months. Uh, it's been just really humbling and uh, what a blessing to see so many folks just pouring in our doors. I just want to encourage you. You're curious, like, what, is your, what does the church believe about spiritual gifts? How do you discover it? And... Uh, which ones are applicable and are all of them or none of them or some of them? All these questions, these two series, there are probably four or five messages in each, will really walk you through and kind of get you up to speed on where we are with spiritual gifts. Um, so check those out. 
you've got two weeks to go listen to those, okay? Because that will help you process what we're talking about here in this passage. I'll be covering more of the spiritual gifts listed here on August 15th. So you've got two weeks. I just want to really urge you to go back and listen, refresh, uh, understand, ask God for wisdom because this is a very important topic. It's not like a bonus category. We don't uh, become Christian. God saves us and we grow like, okay, and if I want to tap into spiritual gifts, I should. No, 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 no. It's probably the opposite. The minute you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. He now empowers you to meet needs, to serve the body. Man, who would want to live any differently? So spiritual gifts are the way God strengthens and, and empowers his body to meet needs. So just go by here, those two series, uh, before August 15th. I think it will really help you as we dive into that topic in this passage. Now, speaking of this passage, it is the th third passage on spiritual gifts. And for the common good one, we looked at, I think it was 1 Corinthians 12. In the next season, we looked at Romans 12. And now we're looking at Ephesians 4. And what you're going to find is that in every one of the spiritual gift passages, there's a consistent pattern to how Paul discusses gifts. In fact, let me just lay it out for you. It's real simple. You're going to find these three themes in every one of them in this order. Unity, variety, and profitability. So as you listen to the previous two series, you're going to hear, oh, Unity, variety, profitability. It's true in this passage. Unity was addressed in four through six. Last week, Parker discussed it with us, taught it to us so well. Here now, this week, seven through 11, variety. We'll spend some time on the 15th looking at the specific examples of it. And then 12 through 16 is really about profitability. And in this text, he uses the word maturity to really showcase that that's the way we benefit or that's the way we profit. Other passages, it's like edifying or strengthening. But the point is that in one of those verses, he says that God has given the church gifts to profit with all. In other words, we should all benefit, not in a consumeristic way, but in a spiritually growing way. And so these three themes are clearly seen in every scriptural passage about gifts. And we're gonna see them here as well. Unity, Variety and profitability. So those are two observations. Notice the pattern in the text and then listen to the previous series so that you are kind of now aware of where we're going beginning on the 15th uh, with some specific information about the gifts. Now back to the specific topic of variety within the gifts, which is really the, the point of these verses. And I'll make that case this morning in the time I have left that the real specific point here is variety, but even more deeply, it's not just variety of the gifts, but it's really in the unity of the giver. And I may, I may really should say the authority of the giver. So Paul does two things in these verses. Let me walk you through them real quick. He first of all lays a foundation for variety. In 7 through 10 of Ephesians 4, he lays a foundation for variety. And in verse 11, he gives an example of variety. So while this is a passage on spiritual gifts, I'd remind you, it's a very small portion of the overall passage. You notice that? 12 through 16 is about the benefits of these gifts. 7 through 10 is really about the foundation of them and the authority behind them. It's only in verse 11 he gives a sampling of them. So sometimes we get caught up thinking about the gifts, don't we? What do I have and what am I like and where should I use it? Paul spends the bulk of this time on understanding uh, who has the authority to give them and the benefit they should have. 
And I want us to look today mainly at the foundation for this variety. I hope it will just awaken your spiritual senses uh, to the truth that Jesus Christ is the giver of our spiritual gifts and his authority to do so is uh, unparalleled, unquestioned. So let's dive into that, can we? In fact, here's what we're gonna rightly conclude from these verses just in the last few minutes we have left. Here's what we'll see emerging. That the variety of the gifts rests upon the authority of the giver, Christ. Very simple truth that we'll glean from these verses. Tuck it in your pocket, write it in your journal. Will you say it with me? The variety of the gifts rests upon the authority of the giver, Christ. Let me show you where this begins. It begins in verse eight, eyes on the Bible, would you? And it's the first word again. It's the word therefore. See, in, in verse seven, we have an action described, don't we? Christ uh, gives to all of us a gift based upon his privilege and pleasure to do so. But in verse eight, we have the reason he could do that. And to, to describe this reason, he references an Old Testament chapter, Psalm chapter 68. And Psalm chapter 68 is a chapter about the victory of God over his enemies. One of the phrases is in there is that when he ascended, uh, you know, he received gifts from men. So Psalm 68 differs a bit in that it talks about God conquering his enemies and receiving gifts from men. So what Paul is doing here, watch me here, follow me closely. He's taking this principle that when you are the victor, when you're the conqueror, when you're the settled champion, you have the authority to receive gifts, right? And you also have the authority to give gifts. In other words, when you have authority, you can give and receive. Because why? You're in charge, right? You've won. So you receive the spoils of war. You can dole out things. You're now king. And so Paul is using this, what I think may have some messianic implications as well. He's using this chapter to exalt Christ and to say the gifts that he gives to each of us by his pleasure and privilege in proportion, he can do that because he has ascended with full authority over his enemies. And so now he can give gifts to men. Are you following me? It's really this principle of authority. When you're in charge, when you're the victor, you can give and receive. And by the way, he is associating in Ephesians 4, Christ with the subject in Psalm 68, who is God. So I think there may be even a subtle hinting at the deity of Christ in Ephesians 4, using Psalm 68, which talks about God, to describe Christ. So I like Paul just kind of making sure that they don't forget Christ is God. And he's ruling and reigning. And he has the full authority now to both receive gifts and to give gifts. So simply put, church, the authority of Christ as a victor is the foundation for his actions of giving a variety of gifts to his church. Now, this concept continues to ooze from these verses. Let's keep our nose in the pages of Scripture, can we? Look at verses 9 and 10. Again, this concept of authority, it just keeps uh, emerging. Verse nine talks about his ascension. And then he says, but I guess that means he must have had to descend into the lower regions of the earth. By the way, I don't think 
He means here the lower regions of the earth. Some of your translations may say that. And from that, some folks think this text means that he descended into some place in the earth, perhaps during his time in the grave. I don't think this text points to that. I think it simply says he came from heaven to be on the earth. Because it says in the next verse that he then ascended far above all the heavens. He's back in heaven now above all the other heavens. So he's simply saying here, here's the one who is in charge. He descended. He's referring to Christ. He did what only Christ could do. He won the victory. And proof is that he ascended. He's now beside the Father in a position of authority. And it says here that he fills all things. I love that phrase. You know why? I think it has two kind of points to it. There is a sense in which Christ's person fills all things, right? When you begin to realize he's the victor, he's in charge, he's immense, he's worth so much, his weight is so heavy, he's magnanimous. Then in your heart, in your person, in your room, when you gather, Christ fills it up, doesn't he? Remember Isaiah? When he saw the Lord, he, his train filled the temple. The person of Christ should overwhelm you and fill you. But I also think there's a reference here to Christ actually taking, taking the action of filling things. Like, for instance, his church. He doesn't leave our church empty. He fills it with a variety of gifts. And why can he do that? Because he's completely, totally in charge. He's the king. He has the authority to do so. So I hope you're beginning to sense the weight of this text. Church, hear me, hear me. It's not necessarily only about the gifts. It's about what forms the foundation for Christ to give them. And it's this. He has the authority to do so. He won that. He, he's the God of the universe. Notice something else about this section that just oozes with authority. It's actually a parenthetical phrase. Do you see that? Right before nine, look at your Bible, you see a parenthesis, and then right after 10, you see a parenthesis. So this, this kind of statement about authority, it's preceded and followed by similar words. Look at the end of verse eight. He gave gifts to men. And now the beginning of verse 11, and he gave. So you catching that? Yes, there's actions he takes. He takes this action of giving, but all of that is supported by his position of authority. So this is just a fabulous section. Yes, on spiritual gifts and their variety, but really on what provides the foundation for that variety. And church, let's make no mistake here. It is the authority of Christ. He can give them as he pleases and is privileged to because he's king. Amen. Now, as I thought about this, a couple of questions kind of Surfaced. I was provoked to some things like, I'm not sure I'm following all this. Let me just continue to meditate and think. Maybe they've come to your mind the last few minutes even. Like for instance, here's one. How can Christ be the giver of the gifts, but also the Holy Spirit? So if you go back to our previous two series, we spent a good bit of time on how the Holy Spirit sovereignly distributes the gifts. That's the wording of the Bible. But here it's clear that Christ is the authoritative giver of the gifts. So as a finite, limited man, I'm like, how do both of those reconcile? Here's what I think is the right answer. That the Son 
purchased the right to the gifts and to give them. And he gives them through the power of the Holy Spirit who has the responsibility to distribute them. You see, the, the Trinity never works in conflict with each other. They're always working in perfect harmony. Did you know that if you look in Romans or 1 Corinthians, there's a phrase that says that God gave every man the measure? So you could technically say, well, Todd, it says that God gave the gifts. It says that Jesus gives the gifts. It says the Holy Spirit gives the gifts. You're right. God gives the gifts. It's one God in three persons. And so I see it like this. I think this is a proper way to understand it. The Son purchased and has the right to give them, and the Holy Spirit has a responsibility to distribute them. So we are correct in saying that Jesus gives them and the Holy Spirit gives them. Now, this leans into a, um, a doctrine that's not well known, but I want to share it with you. I know it'll be a little heady, a little seminary-ish, but I think it can be helpful because to be honest with you, the last three or four months, God has used this doctrine to help me understand the Trinity just a little better. And I'm only like maybe 0.004% into understanding the Trinity, okay? I mean, it's a massively deep and unexplainable concept, but we know it's taught in Scripture. So we just pray for God to give us insight, spiritual wisdom, revelation. But the doctrine is called the doctrine of inseparability or the doctrine of inseparable actions. And it simply states this, that when one person of the Trinity operates or does something external to the Trinity, it can be said that all the Trinity did it. And it helps me realize, oh, there are persons in the Trinity who have specific roles, but yet when all said and done, we simply say, God did that. It's one God. Does that make sense? It's been a real blessing to my heart during times of meditation. Let me give you two examples. And this one here is one of them, by the way, how the Spirit and the Son work together. Here's two more. In creation, God created the heavens and the earth, but John says that nothing was made that was made without the Son. So God spoke through the Son, who is the living Word of God. And how did then that powerful Word affect creation? The Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. You see, the Spirit is the platform, we'll call it, or the agent by which God's power is manifestly present. We learned that in the series on the Holy Spirit. So guess what? Did God create the world? Yes. Did Jesus create the world? Yes. Did the Holy Spirit create the world? Yes. Guess what? God made the heavens and the earth. The same thing is true in your salvation. Question, did God save you? Did Jesus save you? Or did the Holy Spirit save you? Maybe I could say the Father in that sense. Did the Father save you? Did the Son save you? Did the Spirit save you? Each of the persons of the Trinity were part of that. The Father planned from before the foundation of the world to call you to repentance. Jesus purchased all of the payment necessary at the cross in a specific time and place. And then at a certain point, the Holy Spirit applied that to your life and breathed on you and you repented. So did God the Father save you? God the Son or God the Spirit? Here's the answer. God saved you. Amen? So this doctrine is not well known. It's not something we talk about a lot, but I have just found it quite comforting. And I see it in this passage. The Holy Spirit, he gives gifts. The Son, he gives gifts. The Father, 
He measures out the measure we need because God gives spiritual gifts. He has the authority to do so. Now that question is, like I said, a little heady and perhaps maybe it will feed some of you who are looking for that kind of information. The second question that I was kind of provoked with was this, well, why does this matter? Because even in my own study, I was like, man, this is getting kind of bookish, you know? I don't mind that, but I don't think it's all of us. Different learning styles and preferences and, and interest. So I said, Lord, why does this matter? Why does your authority in relation to the variety of the gifts even matter? And let me just share with you that here's a principle that's true in all areas, and we're going to see it true in this area. The principle is this. Authority always settles everything. Now, if you don't believe that, look at our culture. And we have right now a culture bent, hell-bent on sabotaging authority. And we could name all the ways it's happening. I won't in this message. And things are very unsettled. But true authority settles everything. And that's true in relation to the variety of the gifts. Let me give you at least three ways I see Christ's authority settling things in regards to the variety of the gifts. First of all, his authority settles, or we could use the word echoes, unity. In other words, when you, when you read this passage, your, your first attention's not drawn to all the gifts, and then those gifts aren't lifted up and prized and praised What's really said first is, hey, all these gifts, man, they're for one body and they're from one giver. His name is Jesus. He has the right to give them. I mean, you really sense, you hear this echo of like, wow, it's all about one giver who descended, who ascended. So I think this authority really settles and echoes the fact that it is one body with a variety of gifts, but they're aimed at one purpose. So again, it settles, kind of echoes unity. It also settles, or we could say enables contentment because Christ's authority is perfect authority, mind you. It's righteous, it's just, it's wise. So guess what? He did not make a mistake when he gave you your gifts. Whether it's one or more, he didn't have a bad day at the heavenly office and say, man, I missed that one. Uh, you, I only was able to eat, hit 80% of our quality ratio, you know, uh, goal. None of that happens in God's realm. He perfectly, proportionately, justly, freely, accurately, divinely gave you just what you needed. And he does that whether your gift is the one that's maybe used on a regular basis he empowers you for that. Or maybe it's a gift that you have in a spontaneous moment to meet a need. Guess what? The authoritative king knows just what you need and this church needs. And he will gift us in exactly those ways every single time. So we can be content, right? Secure. I would remind you that when you argue and complain and criticize about the gift or gifts that God has given you, you're actually complaining and criticizing, arguing with the wisdom and authority of God. 
And the posture of the Christian isn't a hand in God's face or a bowed up chest because we don't like something he did or he gave. It's a bent knee because he's the king. His authority means he made no mistake in allotting the gifts to the church as he did. So again, it just enables contentment. It also expunges jealousy. You could say it settles jealousy. Because there's no mistake under his authority, we can now serve confidently and securely, not competitively or selfishly. We're not vying for positions. We're not trying to outdo each other <clears throat> in negative ways. And we want to serve with confidence and security. Just a few weeks ago, a young lady came to the front to pray afterwards, her first week here. And she has some trauma in her background. And so I was praying with her, but I wasn't sure what to do next. Um, just a number of factors like, man, I'm, I'm so out of my league here. And as soon as I said amen, one of our dear members walked up, a lady, and she said, Todd, I, I met her at the door. Can I just take her here and have some more time with her? And so she walked out with her and was talking with her. I heard later that this kind of situation is exactly right down the, uh, kind of in the gift mix of this lady of our church. And she goes, Todd, I love people who are coming out of trauma, needing some like, hands-on help. And she goes, it was a pleasure for me to just take her off your hands. And she meant that in the right way, right? I mean, I, was, I wasn't jealous of that. I was thankful. She wasn't jealous of my role. It's just teamwork. And so when we see variety in play, it should just expunge jealousy and increase gratitude. So I want to encourage us to make sure that we're not undermining variety when we see it, but instead let's value it. And an example of this variety is verse 11. I won't stay long here. I want to just kind of do this on August 15th, but just notice briefly for a second, he does list these gifts that he gave to men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. I don't think he's saying here that every Ephesian in that church had these gifts, He's just saying they all have a gift. This is a sampling of the gifts the Holy Spirit, Christ, or God gives. You notice in the scriptural passages about spiritual gifts that none of the lists are exactly the same. This one's different as well. Because I think all the lists are a, are a variety of gifts. They're examples of how the variety exists. And so here's another question that surfaced in my mind as I was thinking through this in regards to this example. Why are only these listed? You ever wondered that? Like, why does he list these gifts in this book and other ones in other books? Here's what I think is going on in Ephesians. You know, Ephesians lists for us the gifts that are particularly critical to the founding of the church. Now, let me remind you of something, that Ephesians is written primarily as a book to the church as a whole. It's probably a circular letter that went to multiple churches, multiple gatherings of believers. It doesn't mean there's not individual passages in there directed to us, but by and large, you'll find that the predominant pronoun in Ephesians is either the plural you or the plural us. And so it's a book aimed at the church at large. And I think in this section, what he does is this. He makes sure they know that these gifts were critical to the founding of the church. It doesn't mean they still don't operate, but it does mean that without these gifts, the church could not have begun to operate. So I think he mentions these because he's reminding them 
These are the gifts God used to birth the church and continues to see her birth other churches. Now, I'll cover more about this on August 15th. I know there are probably questions and you're like, hey, what does this mean? What does that mean? We'll do our best to tackle them. We may trip, who knows, we'll see, but I know God's word will be good to us. So be sure on that week, you've listened to the two series and are back for more discussion about these two. For today, let's just bask in the beauty and comfort of Christ's authority, ultimate, final authority to empower us, his church, with a variety of gifts. Because this is our take-home truth today. This is a singular kind of sentence I want you to have in front of you. Hold on to, write it in a journal, put it in your pocket, that the variety of the gifts rests upon the authority of the giver. That he owns and holds the exclusive right to give his children gifts. And he does so through the Holy Spirit. He does so perfectly, lovingly, rightfully, proportionately, freely. And it's a sign of how much he loves us, how much he loves you, how much he loves me. He gave his life on a cross as the substitutionary sacrifice to purchase us. He was raised from the dead as victor, proving God was satisfied with his sacrifice. He then ascended as Lord over all. And he now gives supernatural gifts to us, to empower us, to continue his mission, walking in unity as well as in variety, knowing that both are from our Lord. Yes, church, he's the conductor of the orchestra we call church. He brings the beautiful sound of unity from all the variety. He has the right to give you the instrument you're playing and the right to lead us and the right to make the beautiful music out of it. And the song we play will only be beautiful music when we follow the direction of our authoritative conductor, Jesus Christ. So in light of that, I wanna ask every person here to consider two commitments. You may have already made these commitments, praise God. If not, I wanna ask you to consider them. Every single person here, me, you, have I made these and if not, would I make them today? First of all, here's the first response. I'll submit to the giver. Now, I've not used the word submit much in this message, but you can't preach 30 minutes on authority and not at some point just say, submission's the name of the game. Now, I know in America, we don't like that word. That's unfortunate. It's probably actually sinful. But God's word sees submission as a delightful posture under the authority of the king, his care, his wisdom, his righteousness, his perfection. And so we just joyfully come up under the weight of God's authority in submission. Have you done that? Have you submitted to the giver? And I don't just mean in relation to spiritual gifts and being willing to say, yes, Lord, I'll, I'll use them. Empower me, I'll use them. But have you come up under Christ's authority in relation to the gift of salvation? Maybe you're kind of an agnostic or perhaps a seeker. But you've been drawn back to hear God's word week after week and you're not sure what's happening in your heart, but something's changing. You're curious, you're 
And today you're like, wow, if the Holy Spirit would actually give me a supernatural empowerments in moments of need, I would love that. But you don't even have the Holy Spirit yet. What your first step should be is to submit to the giver in salvation. Ask God to save you through his son, Jesus. And repent of your sin. Turn to Christ, who alone forgives sins through his death on the cross and resurrection. If that's you this morning, I just would urge you, I'd pastorally plead with you, trust God for your salvation. Say to God, Lord, I believe that Jesus is your son, that he died on the cross and that you raised him from the dead. And I believe that only through Jesus can I be made right with you, God. God, would you save me? And then God will do what only God can do. He will save you. So have you submitted to the giver, whether in salvation or just no willingness to say, yes, spiritual gifts need to be a primary mode of operation for me. Second response, second commitment I want you to make, I'll serve with my gift. Because if you say, oh yes, I'll submit to the giver. And then you don't use your gift to serve his body. There's a word for that. There's some nice words for that, like double speak, um, inconsistent. The word I think of is hypocrisy. We say one thing and do another. So let me ask you, are you serving with your gift? Now, some of you are thinking, Todd's trying to drag me to the nursery. I'm not got anything in mind. Maybe that's what God wants to do. I don't know. I think there are formal and informal ways to serve. Amen. There are spontaneous ways we sense a need and God will gift us in that moment. We have to be willing to act. There are regular ways that God will gift us and we just continue to embrace our responsibility. So this is all in those two series. Just kind of listen to that. So I don't really have, I have no agenda here. I'm not trying to fill up the slots in the youth ministry or make sure we have folks to mow the grass. I'm not aimed at anything. I want to get to your heart and say, if you are submitting to the giver, but you're completely selfish with all of your time and abilities and resources, that's hypocritical. Because the Holy Spirit's empowering you with gifts for the profit of the body. So would you commit to using your gift to help this church? To help you with that, stop my Connect Center. We have folks there. You can come see one of our prayer team members, myself, after the service. We'll take the time to make sure we just kind of walk you through the best fit for you. And we'll kind of, there's a process of that. We'll walk you through it. I had a man say to me at the end of the first service, he said, Todd, I'm convicted. He said, I'd love to start serving. I've been attending about three or four months with my wife. Here's some of our passions, our, our desires. And man, it fits so perfectly with the need we currently have. It was just God intersecting so many things. So just see someone. We'll help you. Don't do this. Don't sit in your seat and think, man, that's good preaching for somebody else. Because it's not the authority of this preaching that you need to see. That's why you're in the stuck place you're in. It's the authority of Christ, your King, that you need to see. And the one who gave his life for you and rose again and ascended and is reigning in heaven with all authority is calling you to serve with the gifts that he's given you by his own discretion and privilege. Why would you say no to that? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. 
Thanks for listening.